I'm Leila Saad, and my life is driven by one burning question. How can I become a good ancestor? How can I create a legacy of healing and liberation for those who are here in this lifetime and those who will come after I'm gone? In my pursuit to answer this question, I'm interviewing changemakers and culture shapers who are also exploring that question for themselves in the way that they live and lead their life. It's my intention that these conversations will help you find your own answers to that question too. Welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast. Hello and welcome back to Good Ancestor Podcast. I'm your host, Leila Saad, and today I'm back with our second end-of-year bonus episode of the podcast, where we are remembering and celebrating the incredible guests we've had on the show in 2021. In our first bonus episode, we recapped episodes 41 to 50, where we spoke with New York Times bestselling authors, decolonial healers, wellness disruptors, satirists, science journalists, meditators, and more. In this second bonus episode, we'll be recapping episodes 51 to 59 of the podcast, which are just as exciting. Once again, we want to thank our patrons who support the work that we do here on the podcast and through the book club on Patreon, as well as a big thank you to our amazing guests who offer us so much wisdom. And then, of course, a huge thank you to you our dear listener, who we create and curate all of this work for you. Thank you for sharing in this labor of love with us. All right, let's kick off with our first recap, episode 51, which we published in April with Sunday Times and Irish Times bestselling author Emma DeBerry. Emma is a teaching fellow in the African department at SOAS a visual sociology PhD researcher at Goldsmiths and the author of Don't Touch My Hair and What White People Can Do Next. Don't Touch My Hair, also called Twisted, The Tangled History of Black Hair Culture in the United States, was our second book selection for the Good Ancestor Book Club. Emma can be found on Instagram and Twitter at Emma DeBerry. So tell us a little bit about you know, what it was like growing up in Ireland as a Black uh, mixed-race child and how that informed your outlook of yourself and the world. Yeah, absolutely. So in the late 90s, there started to be migration to Ireland that has resulted in today there being like a visible non-white Irish population Yes. And that started to happen in the mid to late 90s. Which is the part that my husband is part of. So he's come in that sort of late 90s migration. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's when there starts to be a visible non-white Irish population. And, you know, a lot of people that were born then are coming of age now. So there's really interesting kind of black Irish and brown Irish demographic change happening, Mm. which is having, which is just like, yeah, having a really like really beautiful culture like emerging you know and the country is has changed in ways that I could never have anticipated in the 1980s right (laughs) when I was a child and even in the 90s like I was a teenager in the early to mid 90s and it was again before that migration was beginning had begun and yeah it was just like you know it was a country that was kind of 99.9 percent white catholic very socially conservative there were very, very few Black people. There were very few people that were different in any way, you know? Mm. But particularly ideas about Black people were quite established, even though there wasn't actually like a a physical presence of Black people. And a lot of that had to do with like the role of the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church was incredibly culturally dominant at that time. And there were so many missions to Africa, you know? So as I talk about in the book, you know, kind of being accosted on the the street by like nuns who'd done like kind of missions in Africa, but like stop me. And I go into the type of exchanges that we had in the book, unsolicited exchanges. And there was a real narrative of African inferiority. And I actually was, I was born in Ireland, but we moved to the States Hmm. soon after I was born, came back to Ireland when I was like four or five. 
And that was around the time that Band-Aid was out, you know, with like Bob Geldof and the famine in Ethiopia. And that was just really, that image of Africa was really dominant. Yeah. So there was the assumption that if you were Black and any association with Africa, you should be kind of grateful to be in Ireland, you know, because there was this dynamic that the Irish were charitable and helpful to the unfortunate Mm -hmm. starving Africans. We had like collections for the black babies in school. We, um, pennies for the black babies where, you know, you'd collect pennies and they'd be sent off to Africa. And I remember going to Africa, you know, kind of like not naming any specific countries. I remember going on holiday to Nigeria to see my grandparents and coming back to school. There's like skyscrapers in Lagos. And like, my grandparents like have a chauffeur. And I was like, I don't think they need your pennies basically, you know? And I was hauled out of the class and told, you know, that I had a chip on my shoulder and I needed to stop kind of inventing stories. And there was a lot of resistance to anything that interrupted that narrative of African kind of primitivity and, and inferiority. So I had a lot of like kind of confrontational exchanges from a young age. Also, I think to me, what was so difficult was the fact that I didn't have any peers really, or even other family members, you know, who I could really, my parents split up when I was about eight. My dad went back to Nigeria and I have siblings, but they're a lot younger than me. So I was experiencing all of this stuff without having any kind of support from anybody else who might have had you know, similar types of experiences. So it was very much that sense of isolation. I speak to young Irish people now who tell me that they experience racism, but then they also tell me that like half of their class is black. You know, that's something that I couldn't even begin to imagine. Yeah, It sounds like there's more, there's now more black children in some classes than there were in the entire country when I was growing up, you know? Yeah. So it was that kind of, it was that isolation that was really difficult. It was the racism compounded by the isolation. In May, for episode 52, we spoke with Donnie Walton, whose book, The Final Revival of Opal and Nev, was our third book selection for the Good Ancestor Book Club. Donnie's work as a fiction writer and journalist explores identity, place, and the influence of pop culture. I loved reading this intriguing story that blended race, music, and black girl magic in a way that I had never encountered before. Find out more about Dawny at dawnywalton.com. So the second ancestors that you talked about were um, black women in rock more broadly, which brings us on to talking about Opal and Nev. So I want you to, if you can briefly just share what this book is about, and then we're going to track back to hear about your story before this novel. But it's good to give people context. So tell us about the final revival of Opal and Nev, your debut novel. And I'm, I am blown away, you know? (laughs) Well, in a way, I feel like it's a book that I have been writing my whole life. So the final revival of Opal and Nev, it's a fictional oral history It's about an interracial rock and roll duo. That would be Opal, who is a Black woman born and raised in Detroit, and Nev, who is a white Englishman born and raised in Birmingham. And they make weird rock and roll together in New York City in the early 1970s. And the book follows their rise and their fall and some of the secrets that come to light as they consider reuniting in 2016 for a tour. Mm. And so you have two separate timelines. There's a 19, early 1970s timeline and then the 2016 timeline. And the bridge between the timelines is the journalist who is curating this story. Her name is Sunny, and she has a very personal tie to the launch of Opal and Nev. And it's not a spoiler to say, because it's the very first line of the book. Her father was Opal and Nev's drummer, and he was killed during a racially motivated riot at a 1971 Opal and Nev concert. Hmm. 
when Opal lodges a protest against a rival band who brandishes the Confederate flag during their shows. And so Sonny is trying to learn more about the father she never knew because he was killed before she was born, just before she was born, but also sort of dealing with her complicated relationship toward Opal, who has been a bit of a heroine for her, her whole life. And so as she learns more about the complications of this figure, everything gets a little more fraught. Yeah. And it is just an incredible novel. I really want to encourage everyone to pick it up and read it. If you want to join us in the Good Ancestor Book Club, we will be studying this book. Um, You can go to goodancestorbookclub.com, join us. We will be live in conversation with Donnie at the end of that month, discussing, asking her questions about the characters, really going into the spoilers that you so carefully tried to avoid in that description and that I will also be doing my best to avoid in this conversation as well. But it really is just a novel that it's written in a novel way. So let's start there. I remember opening it up. I had no preconceptions about what it was. You know, I just seen the cover, read the blurb and was about to just dive in. And I start reading the very first thing, which is the editor's note. And I'm reading it and I'm going, wait, what is it? Wait, is this Donnie's editor? Who is this? Who is this? Then I'm like Googling Opal and Nev to see if they were real people. And I just hadn't realized it. Right. So <laughs> I'm reading and then I'm, I'm like, oh no, this is how it's written. This is the style. It is not written in a traditional format. And I think that really speaks to your own journey as well. I know you started off well prior to where you are now, you were at Essence Magazine. Tell us about your journey and why you chose the specific journalistic format that you did for this book. Sure. For 20 years before I started writing this novel, I was a journalist. As you said, I worked for Essence. I also worked for Entertainment Weekly. I worked for Life. And especially at Entertainment Weekly, we used the oral history format, which is basically allowing the people at the center of a story to speak very directly raw. You know, it's a series of interviews. And what we loved about using the format there was that it allows a lot of different voices to overlap. And it was a really fun way to tell the stories of films or television shows or albums that everybody loves, things that feel iconic, you know? And I wanted the reader to feel Opal and Nev as A, real people, and B, sort of larger than life and deserving of this kind of treatment, that there would be a lot of different kinds of people talking about them and having opinions about them and their influence. And it's a very structured format in some ways. But I thought that kind of having some structure in that way allowed me to go wild within the lines of that and just let my characters be as bold and raw as possible. And I loved kind of creating this chorus of voices. You know, of course, my main characters, the the title characters, but everyone around them from Opal stylist to the owner of the record label to the secretary of the record label to Opal's sister, you know, who she grew up with in Detroit. So it was a really fun format to also try to explode a little bit. Mm. And so the editor's notes that you talk about are sort of interruptions by the sunny journalist character. And she sort of breaks in and gives the reader a little more context and some personal color. And she gives glimpses of these figures as older people, kind of 45 years removed from these incidents that launched them into the spotlight. And it was just a great, it was just great fun to use this form. Our second episode for May episode 53 was a treat as we got to speak to not one but two guests Rebecca Walker 
and Lily Diamond, co-authors of What's Your Story, a journal for everyday evolution. Rebecca and Lily created What's Your Story in 2011 as a method that uses deeply personal and highly electric writing prompts to help you rewrite the stories you tell about yourself and your life. You can find out more about their work together at whatsyourstorynow.com and you can find their personal websites at rebeccawalker.com and lilydiamond.com. I took the Art of Memoir course and I do think, yeah, from the moment that we met and that I began to learn from Rebecca, I think I felt both that deep kind of kinship that that you're talking about, but also being in the space of the Art of Memoir course, Mm -hmm. I recognized, you know, I have been very fortunate to sit with many extraordinary spiritual teachers from many different backgrounds, significantly from the Buddhist tradition in my life. And I felt like I was experiencing in that space a teacher who was able to really meet people's minds in a way that is extraordinarily rare. And to watch how people were able to dig into their stories, which of course is Mm -hmm. at the heart of the work that we now do together with What's Your Story, but to really see someone, Rebecca, as this guide allowing people to get both to the heart of, of their story and to their truth, but also to understanding the spaces where we all have been holding on to stories that have kept us from being free. And so experiencing that, it was a transforming, a deeply transformative moment in time for me and for the the path that I think my life would then take. And coming out of it over the next couple of years, I was a student of Rebecca's and we worked together in many different capacities and I assisted the Art of Memoir workshop. And then, you know, this idea came forward of like, well, how do we really give people the tools that we all want and need to be able to be deeply honest with ourselves in such a way that allows us to do this transformative work, which Mm. obviously, you know, in creating the workbook, the me and white supremacy workbook is the same question that, you know, you held and we're asking and bringing forth into the world. And so what's your story came out of that space and out of that desire to give people the, the tangible questions that can point them to the freedom to see the stories that we all hold that shape and define our sense of self and then liberate ourselves from them as we create new stories for both ourselves and the world. Wow. Thank you for sharing that, Lily. I'm curious, Rebecca, you must have seen many students coming through the Art of Memoir class Yeah, I guess, yes, where were you at at that point in your life? But what was it in particular about Lily? Yeah, a very important question. I had been writing memoirs and personal essays and and working through the process of facing my own history, my own story, and the pain of it and Mm. the joy of it, but, but the complex sort of knots of it. I had been writing my way through those knots to achieve a level of of liberation from the knots and to write a new story that was wholly mine instead of the story I had inherited from my family, from the culture, be that about being multiracial, being a mother, all different kinds of things that the culture had told me I needed to be. So I had gone through this process of doing this work. And also I was living on Maui I was 10 or 12 years into a very profound Buddhist studentship myself and had really come to the understanding that in order to be truly free, I had to let go of all of the stories that I held, including the conceptual idea that stories themselves were important, (laughs) you know, that I had to get to a place where everything was fundamentally empty, the understanding that the mind is really writing the story on all of these things that we're seeing in our world. And so I was, I was at a place where 
I was ready to teach, you know, because I had gotten there after so many years of holding. So I started to teach in this way in the workshop because I felt called to do that. And Lily appeared in workshop and there was something about her openness that really struck me. Her openness, her curiosity, her desire to mm-hmm. struggle with the stories that she was holding, her longing to be free. You know, in our tradition, the Vajrayana tradition, we always talk about the approach of the student. Yeah. So how a student approaches a teacher is very, very important. The student who's ready engages in a process of reciprocity. They understand that they are taking from the teacher and that they have to give in a commensurate way. They come with a profound respect and appreciation. They ask all the right questions. <laughs> you know, so there, there are different ways that we describe it. It's right time, right teacher, mm. right student, right teachings. And I felt at that moment that I had the right teachings for her, that she was the right student, and that it was the right time. And that's something that is not in the human realm of, of logical thinking. And yet it was very true. And I recognized her. In July, for episode 54, we spoke with author, speaker, and behavioral and data scientist, Pragya Agarwal. Pragya's book, Motherhood, on the choices of being a woman, was our fifth selection for the Good Ancestor Book Club, and one that provoked much deep thinking about our individual and societal constructs about motherhood and womanhood. Find out more about Pragya's work and her other books at drpragyaagarwal.co.uk. So I would love if, before we dive into motherhood, you could tell us a little bit about your journey as a writer and some of the other books that you've written and how they led you to eventually writing this book now. Yeah, I mean, so I was um, uh, I was an academic. I came over to the UK around 20 years ago as a young single parent to do my master's and PhD. And I write a little bit about that in this book and my previous books. And so I did my PhD and I was an academic in UK and US universities and I was working and doing my thing. And I wrote a lot of academic papers and research papers and some edited books and things. I was always interested in kind of the notion of uh, how we form a sense of the world that we live in, the mental models that we form and how these different models can be aligned. Um, So I was working a lot on technology and the bias in technology, but also in the world about Mm. how we talk about the places that we live in and how mental models shaped our perception of the world and why there's so much conflict between different mental models. I gave up full-time academia for a number of reasons. I was going through infertility uh, treatment and and all those things. And and I was commissioned to write a book. I was doing a lot of consultancy around bias in, and in organizations, and I was commissioned to write a book called Sui, Unraveling Unconscious Bias by Bloomsbury, the end of 2018. So that ba- book came out April 2018. 20 in the UK and August in the US. And that book is about the science of how we form the notion of bias in our brains, what's happening in our brain, why we are doing that, why evolutionarily speaking, neuroscientifically speaking, why this notion of bias is there and how that affects our perceptions of the world and how it affects our status in society as well, these hierarchies that exist. So things like uh, sexism, racism, but also ageism and accent and all those kind of things I wanted to discuss. And I wanted to bring approach bias from a very interdisciplinary perspective. I'm a parent. So I and I have now I have an older child who was born in India and I have um, five year old twins who are mixed heritage. So I'm always very interested in the notion of how we speak to children about race and racism. And these things obviously came to the forefront much more deeply and really prominently after Black Lives Matter last year. So I was asked to write a book which is Wish We Knew What To Say, Talking With Children About Race, which came out in October. And it's for not just for parents or just for white parents. I didn't want it to be a manual because I'm not a parenting expert, but I wanted to bring across developmental psychology perspective in how children form a notion of prejudice and bias and why we should approach it at a very young age rather than leaving these yeah. topics till a very later age. 
And I suppose as I was thinking about, so all, all the books are kind of linked through with about social inequities and about racial and gender inequities. And I just thought motherhood is something that really, really creates and strengthens and perpetuates these inequities, whether we choose to be a mother or not. And so which kind of led me to this book now. Our second episode for July and right before our summer break was episode 55 with my dear friend and much respected sister, Lisa Renee Hall. Lisa is an anti-bias facilitator and mental wellness advocate who's helped over 65,000 leaders with quiet, gentle and highly sensitive personalities go on an inner field trip to explore their unconscious biases so they can protect their energy, stand on the side of justice and become better ancestors. Lisa is also the host of the Inner Field Trip podcast and the creator of the Inner Field Trip card deck. Find out more about Lisa's work at innerfieldtrip.com. Can you tell us about some of the other types of ancestors that you have identified and how perhaps when people hear that word ancestor, they think it means a specific thing. They think it means a family line, a blood lineage, and that's the only thing that there is. But you shared that there's many ways of showing up as an ancestor. And, and it came up for me in a workshop I did where a woman, you know, we're doing the writing prompts and then we're talking about it afterwards. And she was lamenting that I will never have children. And I've accepted that fact. And therefore, I don't have anything else to offer. So why am I doing this work? As somebody who is choicefully child free, when you heard that, how did that hit you? Well, because <laughs> I've done my own work. Nothing surprises me in these rooms anymore. <laughs> so... Usually, and one of my facilitators, Miriam Hall, she was co-facilitating with me in a room. And she said to me, you know, Lisa, I noticed that when these statements come up and when these questions come up, you take a deep breath, you close your eyes. And because, you know, I'm recentering myself, right? Reminding myself of my energy. And so a lot of the things that come up in these rooms just don't surprise me anymore. Right. Doesn't shock me. And instead, what I'm reaching for is the question I can ask in return. And so it was in that moment, you know, I'm not there to teach anyone anything. I'm not there to convince anyone of anything. And therefore, I find that questions help me to stay in my energy of peace and joy, <laughs> no matter what pops up in the room. But questions, and there's research out there. You can, you know, if you're watching me, you can go out there and look for it. But there's research that shows that questions interrupt the thought pattern. That questions just cause the person to stop in whatever thought pattern they're in and interrupts and helps them to shift and start thinking differently. So the question I asked her was, is there anything else you've created that is of value to you? And she sat there and I love when the good question is when the air feels like it's sucked out of the room <laughs> and I could feel like the tension build. So the air, the oxygen leaves and the tension fills the room and, and you know, everyone's quiet because they're like, what's going to happen now? And I sit there because I love that moment, that tension that fills the room because I know something magical is about to happen. And so as she sat there kind of thinking, looking, like trying her best to defend or whatever, what came up instead were tears. And I love seeing the tears. I mean, I don't like I, I don't make people cry, but what I love is, <laughs> and those are tears that it's not fragility tears because those tears aren't meant to shut down and suppress and silence conversation, which is what fragility does. That when emotions like anger and tears show up, that shuts down conversation, that's fragility. But what was happening in that moment is this woman was, those tears were representing a loss or a reclamation of her sensitivities a reclamation of her humanity, a way to see herself beyond what her womb right. can offer the world. And so the tears started flowing. And that's when she talked about photography, pictures that she's taken. And I asked her, well, how can you use that to become a better ancestor? And oh, <laughs> Layla, Layla, I love those moments. I love those moments. And so to your question, I came up with an acronym called FIRE to talk about the four 
ways that we can become better ancestors. So the F in fire is familial. We pass on DNA and cellular memories. So that's the most common method of ancestry that people think of. But there's three others. And you can have a combination of all four or, you know, whatever it may be. There's um, the iron fire is ideological. So you leave behind ideas, inventions, writings. And so for someone like you, Layla, having that best-selling book, Me and White Supremacy, you know, not only are you a familial ancestor because you've passed on your DNA through your children, but also you're becoming an ideological and no, you are an ideological ancestor because you left behind this work. And so that's something that we can do as well. Leave behind writings, photography, recipes, whatever it may be. The R and fire in terms of third way we can become a better ancestor is relational. And this is where we leave behind affinities or memberships. So an example I like to give is I went to a university, I graduated, I'm part of their alumni community. And as a result, I benefit from some of the deals they're able to negotiate because of the numbers of alumni that are part of this association. So I get my car insurance, my house insurance through them. So it's like being part of a community, that belonging, even if it's not through blood. That belonging. That's right. Exactly. After a much-needed summer off, we returned in October for episode 56 with writer, speaker, and lawyer, Savala Nolan. Savala is executive director of the Felton E. Henderson Center for Social Justice at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law. Her debut essay collection, Don't Let It Get You Down, Essays on Race, Gender, and the Body, was our sixth selection for the Good Ancestor Book Club. You can find out more about Savala's work at savalanolan.com. In your own words, can you tell us what this book is about and how it came to be? And and in particular, um, the title, because you speak about that um, in one of the essays, the title, Don't Let It Get You Down, how, did, how you came upon it. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad you asked. I love that question. Well, you know, the the sort of nutshell answer is it's a it's a collection of 12 essays that are deeply personal, but also, you know, I hope quite political and very much rooted in, in my own body and, and the the wisdom and the the knowledge of my own body, but also I hope universal, like we all have bodies, right? Our bodies are the site of knowledge and epiphany and pain and memory and lies. You know, we all believe things about our bodies that aren't true. So I hope that though I'm using my own body to talk about my life and race and gender and to an extent class that people relate, right? Because we all have an embodied experience of these definitional things like race and gender and class in our lives. Um, so it's really a memoir, you know, as you, as you said earlier, I write about lots of different things from interracial friendships to state violence to, you know, violence against women to dating. I mean, I really kind of cover the gamut from my perspective as someone who, you know, is black and also mixed, um, has been in a lot of really wealthy very elite spaces, but is not from money and has pretty abject generational poverty in my family. From my perspective as someone who's been fat and thin over and over, you know, as a woman in particular, we're so kind of tied to what we look like that it really, it can powerfully inform your perspective to have a body that's right sometimes and a body that's wrong sometimes. So I bring this kind of, um, multivalent or multilingual perspective to these issues. And, and I wanted to map that, you know, I just wanted to chart and explore that. Um, And that desire turned into the book. And yeah, the title, Don't Let It Get You Down, it comes from a conversation I had with my hairdresser several years ago. And I do tell the story in the book, but I'll, I'll tell it here too, of course. So I was in the salon, you know, having my hair done and scrolling my phone, you know, as we do. And let's see, I guess it was six years ago because I was having, I remember very distinctly just having a very pleasant, lovely day and a lovely time. And then sort of running headfirst into the wall of the news on my news app 
that the cops who shot and killed Tamir Rice were not going to be prosecuted. And Tamir Rice was the young black boy who was uh, murdered in Ohio. And I think the thing that was really salient for people, at least for me, and thinking about that instance of state violence was that the cops, like, you know, there's a video, there's footage of it, and the cops show up at the park, and then it's two seconds before they fire their weapons. So, like, the speed of it was, I don't know, it was shattering how quickly that happened, and then it was shattering again to see that there were not going to be any charges. So I went from kind of, you know, happy-go-lucky in this lawn chair to visibly shaken. And my hairdresser saw this. He's an older Black man. I've, I've been seeing him for years and years. And he saw how upset I was. And he said, what's going on? What's wrong? And I explained, they're not going to prosecute. And he kind of took a step back um, and paused. And he said, don't let it get you down. Don't let it get you down. And he said it. He said it twice. And he didn't say it with any of the like, oh, don't let it get you down. Like, I'm used to hearing that phrase in this kind of like upbeat, peppy way. And he didn't say it like that at all. He said it was so much heaviness and weariness, almost like a very stern warning. And I realized in that moment that an older Black person was offering a younger Black person some very, very serious advice, like a survival strategy kind of advice. because. In this country, you know, if you're Black or, I mean, this is true for marginalized groups across the world, right? But the way we were talking about it was about American Blackness. So in this country, if you're Black, you know, and you let the pain of history and the pain of the status quo and the sort of relentlessness of it get you down, if you let it bring you to your knees in a way that undermines your own sense of dignity and humanity you may never get up. Like it's so relentless. I think that is the perfect word for it. It is relentless. Yeah. Our second October episode, episode 57, was with Therese Kator, embodied practitioner, leadership coach, and the founder of Embodied Black Girl, a global community that stands for the embodied liberation of Black women and femmes and women of color everywhere. Her work deeply explores the shadows and gifts of humanity and bridges leadership, spirituality, healing, somatics, mindfulness, decolonization, and social change. Find out more about Therese's work at therezecator.com. You speak a lot in your work about the decolonial healing work that needs to be done. And as I'm hearing you share this story, I'm thinking about the ways in which that ancestral healing, medicine, knowledge, wisdom for so long and by so many of us, because we've been conditioned that way, has been either rejected as lesser than by ourselves, right? Or appropriated, exoticized by those who are in dominant culture. So that space of reclamation How have you seen, because I feel like a lot has happened in terms of our relationships with ourselves and our, our identities and our backgrounds within a very short time over these last few years. How have you seen how that looks like, especially for your community and your clients? And what are some things that you encourage people to do as they reclaim these, what has been taken as new age, but really is old age practices? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I I was thinking just the other day is that the revolution will not be commodified. And it's all about the commodification of these things for capitalism. And part of it is knowing this is medicine that our ancestors used for liberation. This is liberatory medicine. This wasn't for capitalistic gain. We live within capitalism, obviously. So I'm not against part of capitalism is the desire for Black women to be poor and to be destitute. And I'm not for that because we live, we have to be realistic. We live within the system. 
But at the same time, there is the medicine that we have. Capitalism commodifies it to be like, oh, this trendy thing. And then they move on to the next, right? At at a certain point, they move on to the next thing. But this medicine is actually ultimately so that we can be embodied, so that we can stand for liberation, right? And I was just thinking about People use the word embodied. A lot of people use the word somatics. And somatics is, again, it's just a commodification of embodiment. And embodiment is our birthright. Embodiment is emancipation. And we all, depending on the person's identity, we have different points of entry of the work that we have to do. Like what you were just sharing around with Black folks, with folks of color, Indigenous folks, we internalize that oppression. That's right. So it's about unpacking that internalized oppression and removing blame because a lot of it, a lot of what I see is the internalized oppression shows up as blame, blame of the self of like, oh, the reason why I'm not, or I don't have X, Y, Z is because I didn't work hard enough or I didn't, or my parents didn't work hard enough or all of these external things. And of course, there's always a degree of like, what are the choices? But then when our choices are thwarted over and over again, so that it's like, you're literally like a mouse running on a hamster wheel going nowhere. And that's been the experience of so many Black people and folks of color, and we're, we have to break that legacy of, of that experience. And it starts, I believe, with like embodiment. It starts with decolonizing our bodies. It starts with decolonizing our leadership. Like you're a leader, right? But the, the way that leadership has been commodified, <laughs> capitalized, is like that's the, right. the capitalized right, that's is right. that leadership looks like a white dude, right? It looks like tech bros, which are actually killing the earth. Like, let's be real. You know, it's really killing the earth. And I guess I'll, this is the time to share this with you. Several months ago, I heard just like literally just in my meditation, I just heard the words decolonize or die. Decolonize or die. And it literally stopped me in my tracks. And what that really brought forward is, is that human beings are almost like the enemy to the earth. Right. We were supposed to be in relationship. Right. And and to ourselves. Now, yeah, to right? ourselves, it's- to one another. In November for episode 58, we spoke with the poet Jasmine Manns, whose poetry collection, Black Girl Call Home, has been named one of Oprah's most anticipated LGBTQ books and a Time magazine must read. Jasmine's poetry has gone viral many times over on YouTube, She's opened packed shows for Most Deaf and Janelle Monet, and she's also a contributor to the 1619 Project. Find out more about Jasmine's work at jasminemans.com. Could you tell us a little bit about your journey? Because that's, I know a lot of where your work started is in, in spoken poetry. Can you tell us about that and how you experience yourself in, in those moments when you're on the stage? It's so interesting because I went to college and I was a part of poetry collectives and like did poetry professionally. And poetry has always been deeply a part of my academics and a part of my professional life. It's been my only professional life. It wasn't until just recently. I mean, during my experience of Black Girl Call Home, I felt this, but recently at a funeral, I went to in Newark, my hometown, there was sound and there were people using their voices as storytellers. And there was this essence of bebop and there was this essence of call and response that my community 
knows so beautifully that is a mixture of God and poetry. And I realized, I was like, oh, this is where it comes from. And when you go to college, you forget, you may think it came from that mentor that you found when you were 25. And then these things help you refine these tools. But I realized that what the sound of my voice and the cadence and the tone, it comes from, and it was inherited from this community of, of storytellers and, and of folklore that, that exists in our celebration and in our mourning. And when I said at that funeral, I was like, oh, this is where you come from. This is where all of that comes from. That's powerful. Yeah. And I, I don't take credit for it. Like, I feel strong when I perform. I feel like God is speaking through me. And so it is something that I don't want to take credit for. Mm, that's beautiful. I love that. And we so take for granted so often the what we take to be as mundane, right? And what we take to be as just this. Well, that's just, you know, where I grew up. That's just my family. That's just the rituals that we have in our culture or whatever it is. But it's so deep. And I love that you had that moment of reflection and really it sounds like it almost regrounded you back in. It's not even me that's doing this. Like I'm the tool. I am the channel through which this is happening, but I'm a product of my environment and of, you know, the work that is being done through me as well. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Do you remember the first poem you ever read? I was discovering, I wanted to be a rapper so bad. It wasn't even about poetry. It was about my rap. I could see, I could see that. <laughs> I could see it. <laughs> and then something in me said, you should be a poet instead. And I remember being militant and writing a poem about like burning the flag of the United States. That's not the first poem. That's the first poem I remember. And that I shared with like my sixth grade teacher but it was about burning the flag and America not being honest. And it was, I remember at that moment when I was discovering things about the civil rights movement and poets that existed before me. And my love for poetry came by way of understanding civil rights and the strides of Black people in the United States. Our final guest interview for 2021 was episode 59 with the wonderful Valerie Kaur. Valerie is a best-selling author, lawyer, filmmaker, educator, and civil rights leader. Her debut book, See No Stranger, a memoir and manifesto of revolutionary love, was our seventh book selection for the Good Ancestor Book Club and our final book selection for 2021. Valerie leads the Revolutionary Love Project to reclaim love as a force for justice. Find out more about Valerie's work at ValerieCore.com. So I would love if you could talk to us about what love means for you. What does revolutionary love mean for you? And why is it not just this fluffy word that's just about just seeing the best in each other and just hoping for the best and just trying to be optimistic? Um, just acting like we're not hurt when we are, right? Just uh, forgiving when we, when we really haven't resolved anything, right? What is revolutionary love? Yeah. Well, let me say first that I, I'm a trained civil rights lawyer. So for many years, anytime someone stood on a stage and said, love is the answer, I would roll my eyes. <laughs> I'm like, really? Uh, but, you know, what is love against institutions? that perpetuate injustice, you know, and I, and it was, it was my existential crisis after my son was born and realizing that you're right, hate crimes had never gone back to the levels they were at before 9-11. Our communities are five times more likely to be targets of hate than we were before 9-11. My son's first racial slur came at four. You know, I was six, he was four, go back to your country. So, so it was, it was from that moment of crisis that I got, I stepped back from Frontline's activism and I poured through all of my lived experience, all the stories that had been in, entrusted to me, social movements of the past, wisdom traditions, and began to see these patterns. And I thought, oh, okay, the problem is not with love. It's the way we talk about it. 
we tend to talk about love as if it's this rush of feeling, this rush of emotion. And I mean, I remember the moment my son was placed on my chest, I was shaking and sobbing from that rush of feeling. And I thought, this is love. I am falling in love. And there's a role for the falling. But in the meantime, my mother is opening up her bag, taking out her doll and troll <laughs> and proceeding to feed me, right? Like feeding her baby as I'm feeding mine. And and she knew what I was just beginning to learn, that, that love is more than a rush of emotion. Love is sweet labor, fierce, imperfect, bloody demanding, difficult, life-giving, a choice we make again and again. And if love is labor, if love is what we do with each other, for each other, then love encompasses all the whole range of human emotions. So joy is the gift of love, but grief, grief is the price of love. The grief that we're carrying in our bodies is a sign of our capacity to care, to honor our grief as part of what it means to love well, rage, you know, how often how have we been taught that rage is the opposite of love? No, my love, rage is the force that we harness to protect that which we love. And so I began to realize that perhaps my contribution could be reclaiming love as, as this kind of labor for a new time. Because if we take that kind of love that we experience with our babies, with our, with our most close, in our most closest relationships, and we love beyond what evolution requires, when we love others in harm's way, when we show that kind of care, even for opponents, when we love on ourselves that way, then that is what I call revolutionary love. So I define revolutionary love as the choice to enter into labor for others, for our opponents, for ourselves, to transform the world around us. And that's it. That's our wrap up for the year that was 2021 on the Good Ancestor podcast. Thank you so much for taking this trip down memory lane with us as we refilled and re-nourished ourselves with this good ancestor wisdom. We'll be back in February with brand new episodes, brand new book club selections, and a brand new brand. Good Ancestor podcast will be renamed Become a Good Ancestor in 2022 with a new look and a new feel with a focus on centering and celebrating authors of color who are changing the world with their words, we aim to truly elevate the work of upcoming and contemporary BIPOC authors who deserve all their flowers today. Don't worry, our podcast format will stay the same. We're all about understanding how to become good ancestors, and we'll be taking that work even deeper in the coming year. For now, though, I wish you a restful and peaceful end to your year. I wish you time to reflect and celebrate on the things you have learned, survived, and accomplished this year. And I wish for you an intentional 2022, where you live your version of what it means to be a good ancestor. Big, big love, Layla. This is Leila Saad, and you've been listening to Good Ancestor Podcast. I hope this episode has helped you find deeper answers on what being a good ancestor means to you. We'd love to have you join the Good Ancestor Podcast family over on Patreon, where subscribers get early access to new episodes, patron-only content and discussions, and special bonuses. Join us now at patreon.com forward slash good ancestor podcast. Thank you for listening and thank you for being a good ancestor.